Welcome to another episode of What's Your Face Story. Today, I have a special guest, the guest that I was looking for for a very long time, someone who knows about nutrition. And I have Andrea Nicholson, holistic nutritionist. We're going to be asking her a lot of questions that have to do with aging, the belly that never goes away, or it seems like it goes away and then it comes right back. So we just want to know what should we do? Tell us your story. How This was interesting, how you started with, with being the nutritionist and you are so passionate about it and you offer one-on-one Zoom calls or sessions, virtual sessions, which are, which are very convenient for most of us. And you are in Denver. Uh, so the... Three hours difference, I guess. What's New York uh, time different from you? Two hours ahead of us, yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> Not so much. Okay. I was speaking with people from Australia. That created a little problem. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This is such a fun... Uh, I just love podcasting. I think it's so fun. And we get to interact with so many people and have an impact on people all over the world. Like you said talking to people from Australia. That's just amazing to me. I love technology for this reason. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I got started. I mean, I've always been passionate about health. Um, I didn't always live the life, but I've always been really interested in it. Um, I really started on my journey, or at least my my true interest began. I When I was adopted as an infant, I, thankfully I was because my birth family all died very young from heart disease. And I would have been orphaned completely at 15, had I not been adopted into a different family. Um, they all died of heart disease. They all died very young, um, primarily from their very first heart attack. Um, they were all overweight and didn't live the best life. Um, but I don't really know a whole lot of details about that. That was kind of my first like, ooh, I probably need to pay attention to this or I'm going to go down those same paths. It still didn't sink in at that point because we're invincible when we're young and we don't pay attention to that advice. Um, but in my mid-20s, I went through a comprehensive cardiac panel um, through my employer at the time, where they actually did like look at the carotid arteries and they did the, you know, all the scans and all the, the tests and all the things. And I already had advancing cardiovascular disease. I had plaques forming. My arterial age was 11 years older than I actually was at the time. And I was headed down that exact same path. I had gained some weight. I was about 30 pounds overweight. Um, I had acne. I was bloated. I was uncomfortable. I was tired all the time. I was just kind of miserable. In my mid-20s, you know, we can get away with a lot in our 20s. We can, you know, just pay attention to what we eat a little bit and maybe exercise a little more. And it, it kind of works. And it did for me for a while because I was 20 and I was able to get away with a lot of things that you can't get away with in your 40s. It's just, it's the sad fact of life. But at the time it worked until it didn't. And I started gaining the weight back and my skin started changing back into, you know, acne and all the unhealthy things. I was getting puffy. I was getting tired again. And all of a sudden my muscles were chronically stiff and sore, even if I didn't work out because often it interfered with me being able to work out. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's what started me down the path of learning more about what I could do and what I really needed to be doing to really be healthy. I didn't want to have all these, you know, side effects and problems 
all these symptoms that were plaguing me every day. So I went through various different nutrition plans. I went vegetarian for a long time because I thought that when I felt really heavy and bloated and uncomfortable every time I ate meat, that that meant I just wasn't supposed to eat meat. Like genetically, I just wasn't supposed to. So I went vegetarian and that again worked for a while until it didn't. And then I, again, got really bloated, really tired, had all kinds of weird aches and pains. My skin started breaking out again. By this point, I was approaching 40 and, you know, had literally struggled for most of my life from my teen years up until nearly 40. And I was just kind of fed up because at this point I was eating a very clean, 100% clean vegetarian diet with a little bit of eggs and a little bit of seafood once in a while. So I wasn't a full vegan, but still I was eating whole plants primarily. This wasn't Doritos and Oreo cookies. This was real vegetables, whole, fresh, organic, good quality. And yet I was feeling terrible. Mm. In a lot of ways, I was feeling worse than I ever had with the cleanest diet I could imagine. That's interesting. This just floored me. So this that's when I turned to more holistic practices. I did a bunch of functional testing to try to figure out what this was all about. What I ended up learning through that process is, yeah, I was eating a lot of plants and I was eating a lot of great quality foods, but I was basically eating all carbohydrates because mm -hmm. that's basically what plants are. There's very little protein and there's very little healthy fats unless you're strategically adding those things in. It's much more difficult to get adequate protein and adequate healthy fats just naturally. If all you're eating is, you know, leafy greens and bell peppers, there's not a lot of protein or healthy fats in those things. So you have to really strategically add those things in. And through this process, because I was basically eating nothing but carbs, I ended up with pretty advancing insulin resistance developing. So I wasn't handling blood sugar very well, and it was getting worse and worse by the day. I was also eating every couple of hours. So my hormones and my hunger signals were all out of whack. I was, I literally thought I was hungry all the time. And it was just because I had trained my body to be hungry all the time because I was eating all the time. And so I ended up with that. When I did functional gut health testing, I found that I had basically completely wiped out my gut. I had almost no bacteria, which we need. We need good bacteria in our gut. I was deficient in several nutrients. I had some pathogens that were present. I had low stomach acid. I had digestive enzyme deficiencies. I had a whole host of problems in my gut that were contributing to all of those upstream problems. So I had gut inflammation. I had you know, a wiped out gut immune system. So I was more susceptible to getting colds and allergies and all of the issues that our immune system shows us. I was bloated all the time because I wasn't digesting well. I wasn't breaking down food well. I didn't have the bacteria to help assimilate those nutrients. I just had a lot of problems. And so this was all contributing to the weight gain, the bloating, the skin issues, the poor detoxification, like all of it added up. Once I really knew what the imbalances were, then I could go after it to fix those issues. Right. So, so you just have to find the functional doctor to run those tests. Otherwise, you will never know. And those of us who yo-yo diet um, all the time, really trying 
just different things. We never succeed in that. No. Yeah. There's definitely no saving your health through yo-yo dieting. There's really no health saving benefits to diet dieting in general, yeah. any kind of overly restrictive plan, whether it's calorically restrictive or, you know, you're eliminating entire food groups or any of those kinds of things, they generally don't work long-term. Um, so I'm definitely not a big fan of that. I'm definitely not a big fan of like three week cleanses or six month diet plans that you have no intention of continuing beyond that window. I'm generally not a big fan of any of those temporary quick fix plans um, because I think that contributes to the yo-yo dieting. When you're constantly swinging from one plan to another or you're on plan, off plan, on plan, off plan, it, it's really doing a lot of harm to your um, overall metabolism. And, and it's frustrating too. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Right. So, yeah. So how, how, how did you start on the new path at knowing what your issues are? Did you have help from the functional doctor or did you just go out and uh, learn more about nutrition yourself? I had a little bit of both. I did a ton of my own education and research, so I knew a lot going in, but I also did have support from practitioners who had done this work for a long time. Um, there are lots of practitioners beyond just doctors that have this training. There are nutritionists like myself, there are acupuncturists and chiropractors, and I mean, there's lots of different functional practitioners that can help with this kind of thing. And so I really did lean on kind of a team of people to help me really uncover all of the avenues that I should approach. Um, and then I paired all of that with my own education, you know, made sure that it really fit with me and my interests and my tastes and it was going to work in my lifestyle. Because, you know, there, you can have the best perfect plan ever, but if it doesn't actually work in your life right. or for you, it doesn't matter how perfect it is. So you really do have to kind of take it all in and decide for yourself, what makes the most sense. And sometimes having that kind of team approach or really talking it through with someone else who knows, they can help you identify, you know, how it's really going to work for you. And is it really the right plan for you? And they can help you figure those things out. That's perfect. So, so the most important thing to know is you just can't do it on your own blindly. You have to have some sort of baseline yeah, I think it really does help to have solid data. Um, I like doing a really comprehensive deep dive so that I'm gathering all of the subjective data from the person. You know, how are they feeling? What symptoms are, are they experiencing? How long has this been happening? You know, any of those kind of clues in their own life that they've already kind of connected. And then obviously teasing out things that they maybe haven't connected. There's a lot of people who don't necessarily realize that they're autoimmune condition is related to their skin issue or their, their, their digestive issue is causing their headaches. Like they don't necessarily connect all the dots and we can do that by talking through these things. So I love gathering all of that kind of subjective data from the client and then pairing that with the hard data, the solid objective data from the testing so that we're really getting a comprehensive picture of what's going on. And then we can pair the recommendations to both sides of that. So that we're optimizing how the client feels in the end. They've actually accomplished their goals. They're feeling their best. They have the energy and the vitality that they really want. They're hitting the weight loss metrics, all of those kinds of things. Whatever it is, whatever the priorities are for that client, we can really hone in on optimizing for that. 
And how long does this take? Uh, how many visits do we have to have before we see the results or you know, feel? It, yeah, this work takes time. It takes effort. It, this isn't a quick fix. I don't just hand my clients a piece of paper and send them on their way. I generally work with people for at least six months um, because these are complex situations. You know, we don't just, I don't just send you on your way with a prescription to eat more broccoli or, you know, one little simple thing or take this supplement. Mm -hmm. These are comprehensive protocols that address what you should be eating, how often, when, what kind of exercise, how much, how much is too much sleep and stress and where do we have hidden toxins and it's a comprehensive plan and we we kind of have to layer some of these things in and it just it takes time and then it takes time to actually get the results too a lot of people are really surprised that actually at the beginning you may not experience anything you may not feel any better you may not notice anything right away you might actually feel worse for a little while because you're detoxing. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So nothing has gone wrong, but we have to be able to work through those stages. And so it just, it takes time. So I work with clients for at least six months. And then beyond that, it just sort of depends on the client and their needs. And some people want longer support than that. Some people feel like they've, you know, mastered the information and they feel confident to go on with their own. Um, it just depends on the client. So aside from nutrition, um, healthy eating, you also talk about healthy lifestyle and what should we be doing throughout the day to reduce stress, increase the oxygen. Yeah. About that. Yeah. I think the overall lifestyle really is the foundation of everything. So within the lifestyle, obviously we have the healthy eating, we have, you know, everything you're putting in and on your body. We also have movement. So we really do need to be exercising every day. This doesn't have to be a formal gym session. You don't have to even go to another facility. You can go for a walk. You can work out in your own home. There's thousands of videos available online that you can follow personal trainers. And, you know, it's like having a trainer in your living room. There's a million different options for how you can get physical activity in every day. But that really is important. Then we also have to really identify stressors. Most of us are really aware of, you know, the obvious stressors. You have a deadline coming up or you just got in a fight with your spouse or a coworker or something like that. Those are obvious stressors that you can like feel in the moment, but we all have a lot of hidden stressors every day. And that could be that you're consuming food sensitivities that are foods that you're sensitive to. It could be that you're exposing yourself to some kind of toxin. It could be that you have a hidden infection. It could be that you're watching really suspenseful TV often. That perceived stress is still a stressor in the body. The body doesn't know the difference between you actually running from a tiger and you watching a video of someone else running from a tiger. Your body reacts the same way. And most of our stress today, we just sort of sit and stew in. We worry about things and we we worry about the future. We live kind of in an anxious state about what's already happened or what will happen. All of those things compound as stress. And then when we add to that, that we're not sleeping well, that we're not sleeping enough, that we, we really aren't adequately resting. And even beyond sleep, just resting during the day even. If, if all you do is you go from work where you're constantly on the go mentally or emotionally 
to you come home and you watch TV, that's still stimulating your brain. It's still potentially adding stress. So even in those things, we're not necessarily resting and rejuvenating. And so we need to be able to do more things that bring us joy, do more things that make us happy. You know, spending time with pets or kids or, you know, loved ones or being in nature, creating art, whatever that looks like for you. Those are the things that we need to really prioritize instead of just constantly being on the go and productive and, um, and, and always worrying about something. So. Right. Some, sometimes we feel guilty when we do nothing or take time for ourselves. Yeah. Where we were just so programmed to do, do, do. Mm-hmm. But actually, we should be ourselves. We should, I don't know where I read that. We didn't come to this earth to be doers. We became, we came here to be beings. Beings, yep. Beings, yep. beings. Yep. yeah, that's <laughs> the phrase, yes. So, uh, yes, it's very hard for us because we were programmed to be uh, productive and that's unfortunately what what happens when our lifestyle is such where we always are we are always on we're always on never turn off inflammation right yeah absolutely yeah. and that's the belly um that never goes away that's the little pouch on the belly especially in a premenopausal or menopausal women and that's unfortunately it's not the food that we are eating it's, it's the stress, the toxins that accumulate in our body. And how do we deal with that? What would you say? Yeah, you know, a lot of that comes back to addressing the overall lifestyle. So that inflammation absolutely is what's contributing to that belly fat that's so hard to get rid of. But what's causing the inflammation? It could be a poor diet. Absolutely. Poor diet is inflammatory. But it could also be hidden infections or that latent stress that we talked about. It could be, you know, inadequate exercise. So you're kind of stewing in that stress still exercise. That's one of the best benefits of exercise is burning off that excess stress. So it could be a lot of those things. Um, It could be not consuming enough anti-inflammatory foods or doing some of those anti-inflammatory activities. Uh, This inflammation really contributes to downstream hormone issues. It can lead to hormone imbalances like estrogen dominance, and it can contribute to insulin resistance. It can actually make your insulin receptors less functional, which means the blood sugar stacks up higher and higher because the insulin can't do the job that it should do. The inflammatory chemicals that are released when you're in that inflammatory state actually block those receptors. So that can contribute to insulin resistance. And insulin is a growth hormone. It promotes fat storage, even in the absence of added calories. So it's converting fuels to fat. And it loves to put that on your belly. (laughs) So for sure. So could you tell us what are the anti-inflammatory foods that we should be eating? Yeah, there's a couple. That One of the main ones is the omega-3 fish oils. Um, You can get those from lots of different sources, but that's kind of the most commonly thought of source is from the fatty fish like salmon. That's a great source. Uh, You can also get it from, you know, just healthy fats in general. So really consuming good quality fats from like olive oil 
or olives in general, coconut products, coconut uh, milk and oil. Avocados. And avocado is a great one. Absolutely. The mm -hmm. fatty fish, some of the quality meat fats, even animal fats, um, a good quality butter is fine. Those kinds of things are great for most people and they can really help to fix your cell inflammation, to help eliminate some of the toxins, those kinds of things. So, and then there's a whole host of anti-inflammatory uh, spices and herbs like turmeric is a great one. Um, so a lot of the Indian foods or, you know, curries, that kind of thing have a lot of that stuff in it. A lot of people also consume those as teas. Um, so there's lots of different ways to get those anti-inflammatories. Berries are great for the antioxidants, um, those kinds of things. So fruits, vegetables, healthy fats, um, omega-3s specifically. That's perfect. So the if someone is insulin resistant by now, um, what, okay, they should release the stress a little bit, but what else can it be done uh, without intervention from a doctor? Yeah, there's a lot that can be done. Um, it depends a lot on, you know, how advanced the insulin resistance is. So testing would really give a lot of great ideas on how advanced that process is. But as far as remedies, you know, the first step is always diet. We have to really take a good close look at what you're consuming, how often you're consuming it, those kinds of things. A lot of people that have insulin resistance are eating far more carbohydrates or refined grains than they think they are. And so that can kind of be the first step is really get a hold of how many carbohydrates and specifically those refined and simple carbohydrates, the, the real sugars or refined grains, the flour based products really getting a hold of those kinds of things is a good first step. Um, and then we really also want to look at how often you're eating, because if you're constantly snacking or if you're following the common advice to eat every two to three hours, then that means every time you eat, your blood sugar goes up right. and that, you know, increases your insulin. And then if you're, by the time your body's coming back down, you're eating again. And so you never really come back down to a real baseline. You're constantly just spiking and coming back down and spiking and coming back down, but you never come all the way back down if you're eating all the time. So if insulin is always coursing through your body, your body's kind of like responding like the boy who cried wolf. When insulin is always there, the body's like, stop it already. I heard you. And it stops responding. And that's what's generally causing the insulin resistance is the body is resisting the presence of insulin. And so it takes more and more and more insulin to do the job that it used to do with less. And so now you have both high insulin and resistance to that insulin, which is fueling that fat storage and all of those problems. So really, we start with diet, we figure out where we can, you know, reduce refined carbohydrates, get a real hold on those things while still prioritizing proteins and healthy fats. So this is by no means a low calorie diet. Doesn't even necessarily have to qualify as a low carbohydrate diet. Although a lot of people with insulin resistance do find that going low carbohydrate to some degree really does help reverse it faster. Um, and you know, to what degree that is, again, comes back to the individual client and how quickly they would like to reverse the situation. But we also wanna look at making sure you're getting exercise. That's one of the fastest ways to start reversing insulin resistance, really training your body to use those available fuels in a more efficient manner. This can be as simple as like taking a 10 minute walk after you eat. It doesn't have to be a power walk. It doesn't have to be hills. You don't have to do anything extreme, 
just whenever you're done with a meal, take a 10 minute walk. That can make a tremendous difference in how efficiently you're using those fuels that you just consumed so that they're not getting stored as fat. Um, and then, you know, Perfect. toxins play a big role in everything. Perfect. Let's go back to the diet. Uh, I wanted to ask you about intermittent fasting. Yeah. Is that is that effective? Or I know everyone should watch uh, their own plan of how many hours they can be hungry and how many meals should they have daily. So that's their own uh, preference. And also the health issues, whatever the health issues uh, are in a body. But I know that uh, Dr. Sinclair has uh, is promoting eating once a day. Would you agree with that or would you object to that? I think intermittent fasting is a tremendously valuable tool. I think like any tool, it can be used inappropriately. It can be used when it's not appropriate for that exact client. So I think there's there's a wide range. And I think there's also a million different definitions of what intermittent fasting means. There are entire populations of people who do eat one meal a day, and that works perfectly for them. It very much does not work perfectly for lots and lots of other people. The same can be true for two meals a day. The vast majority of people really don't need to be consuming food more than three times a day. That takes some time to get used to, especially if you're coming from a eat every two to three hours model. Trust me, I've been there. I went from eating every two to three hours from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. every single day to now I generally eat twice a day. That's what works well for me. I don't necessarily prescribe that for everyone. I don't necessarily think that everyone needs to go that far. But I do think the more you focus on only eating real meals and really only eating when you're actually hungry, when you have true physical hunger, you're, you'll kind of find that groove for you for how often you need to eat, how long between dinner one night and your first meal the next day, how long can you go before you get hungry? And you just sort of naturally find that sweet spot for you. You might still eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You might still eat breakfast first thing in the morning. You might still have dinner at seven o'clock at night. That's totally fine. That's your sweet spot. So I really like to retrain people to find that real sweet spot. I think most of us, we live in a chronically fed state that we've completely lost touch with what it really feels like to be truly hungry. We're always fed. We might not always be well nourished, because we can be well-fed on junk, but we're generally always in a fed state. So we've kind of lost touch with what real appetite feels like, with what real satiety feels like, what actual hunger feels like. And so really honing in on those sensations and becoming really at peace with what your body's telling you, then you can really hone in on exactly what that looks like for you. Okay. So what about breakfast? Is that really important to eat or you can skip that and have lunch, good lunch? Yeah, I think that's one of those things that has gotten sort of altered over the years, a lot of times, honestly, by the breakfast manufacturing companies. Uh, breakfast became the most important meal of the day when cereals became popular. And that message was propagated by cereal companies who wanted you to buy lots and lots and lots of their cereal products. 
historically, humans really don't eat three meals a day. If you look over evolution of, you know, human populations, mostly people ate when they could based on food availability. There was no breakfast counter. There was, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of options. They ate when they could. Now I'm not advocating that we go that, that far again, because obviously we live different lives than they did back then as well. But breakfast really, if you just look at the word, even all that says is you're breaking your fast. So you've been fasting overnight from whenever you ate your last meal yesterday, you fast while you're sleeping all night long. We all do this unless you're night eating or, you know, sleepwalking and eating. We all fast all night long. And whatever you eat first thing in the day is breaking that fast. That could be a true breakfast. It could be seven, eight o'clock in the morning. It could be noon. It could be one or two in the afternoon. It doesn't really matter. That first meal of the day is breaking the fast. So really that's just become the term for a morning meal, but that's really not what it is. It's really just your first meal of the day, breaking that fast. Okay, that's good because we were definitely told that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So, huh, interesting. Okay, so we covered that. And what, what would be the last hour uh, that we should be uh, finishing our meals? Six o'clock? You know, I think that varies a lot by your lifestyle. I think I generally try to aim for at least three hours before bed is sort of that sweet spot. I will say that I do have quite a few clients who benefit from having a very small protein-based snack right before bed. And generally, I recommend this for people who struggle with like waking up at 2 a.m. Right. and their mind is already racing. Like they're, they already feel like they need to get up and take care of their to-do list because their mind is racing at two o'clock in the morning. And a lot of times just adding this small snack before bed, and it could be like right before bed or like an hour before bed, um, can really make a big difference. It keeps the blood sugar more stable all night long. It keeps the cortisol from spiking too early and getting that mind racing. It just seems to really make a big difference. So if you're one of those people that really struggles with that two or three o'clock in the morning, waking up and you can't go back to sleep or you, you can't go back to sleep because your mind is racing, you might try this and just see if it works for you. You don't have to have a whole big meal. It could just be a couple bites of leftover meat or a piece of cheese or some almond butter, like whatever that looks like for you. Try to keep the carbohydrates out of it because those will process really quickly and cause more of a blood sugar spike and then crash later um, that'll contribute to this problem. But if you just have a little bit of protein, then that can really help. So it's worth a shot to see if that makes a difference for you in sleeping. Beyond those situations, then generally I try to keep people from eating too much within three hours of sleeping because that digestive process really can also interfere with sleep especially if you're digesting a large meal, which most of us eat our largest meal of the day at dinner time, And so you don't want to be really full and then go lay down. That can contribute to acid reflux. It can contribute to all kinds of problems and just the digestive process can interfere with sleep. Perfect. So that's great. So if we can summarize, what do we need to do to lose that belly fat? Uh, obviously, there are three things that you've mentioned. It's uh, the, the the carbs, lowering the carb load, exercising and doing something 
that gives you joy or brings you joy, something that makes you happy. And petting the dog is definitely, or, you know, a cat, not my favorite, but <laughs> so, uh, yes, that's why I got my dog because the dog takes me out. Absolutely. I don't have to take the dog out. Yeah. <laughs> so that forces me to be out and breathing and enjoying the outdoors. Absolutely. Pets are a great reason to be active. I love it. Yes. And they bring you joy by petting them. So absolutely. Yes. So what else would you add to this, um, Andrea? And I'm going to show your uh, website where we can find you uh, for one-on-one -on -one session. Yeah, I would um, really recommend that you take a good hard look at the stress picture. Um, that's a big one. You know, get anything off your plate that doesn't need to be on your plate. If you can outsource it to somebody else, if you can just stop doing it, if you can recruit help, whatever that looks like, really whittle down your to-do list. Try not to be the type A, go, go, go all the time kind of person. Do everything you can to really just prioritize rest, prioritize taking care of yourself, you know, eating good foods, focusing on sleep, all of those things play a huge role. But I think it's that stress piece is the piece that is often behind that stubborn belly fat that it makes it so hard to get rid of. Is there some hidden stressor in there? Could be toxin, could be infection, could be a past trauma even. That's another one that a lot of people don't necessarily connect. But if you've got a, a childhood trauma or if you witness something horrible in your past, if you haven't fully dealt with that situation, even if it isn't something that feels like it's always bothering you or comes up often, it really can be the thing that's holding you back. So I would really urge you to take a good look at those things as well and make sure that you've fully addressed past traumas. That's right. And don't have too much wine. So how much is too much? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Is one glass of wine too much a day or uh, seven days a week or that's not good? You know, there, there's really no redeeming qualities to alcohol. There's no nutritive benefit contrary to the, you know, red wine being full of resveratrol and those kinds of things. There, It really has more negatives than positives. So as much as we can eliminate it, the better off we'll be. I'm a big fan of wine, so I'm never going to tell anybody that they have to like fully eliminate it because that's part of the joy. You know, it's part yeah. of like enjoying what we eat and the things that we do that maybe don't always serve us in the best, highest way. But, you know, I think the more we can reduce it, the better. If you can fully eliminate it, that's obviously the best situation. But beyond that, everyone's got their kind of tolerance for alcohol. And yeah. so we know that there is a no nutritional value to it. Yeah. it there is definitely a joy of not having stress or as much stress yeah. after having a company and just having a drink. But uh, yes, that's also, uh, everybody has, has to decide on that themselves. Okay, so we came to the end of our uh, visit and we are just, the information that you just received are going to be helpful in losing this stubborn belly fat. So good luck and please reach out to Andrea. Again, thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.